So here we are at the end of day three, the third full day of our retreat. Sometimes I look out here from this place and I'm amazed that people are still here. (laughs) So I say, oh, they haven't left yet. You know, because it's all open doors, right? I mean, we don't lock you in here or anything. (laughs) And the first two days can really be rough, you know. We hear that from people, you know, just what you go through physically and mentally and what we all go through on the first couple of days of the retreat. And today, typically is a day that many people start to feel that sense of something dropping. The the mind is getting a little bit more settled. The body works out some of its uh, adjustments in the posture. It's like the things that were important when you came lose some of that, uh, some of their grip. And we're just more and more here in this field, in this world. It's not unusual for that to be the pattern. And then if we're here longer, that that settling can continue to happen. However, there's also another stream that can happen for people, another rhythm where there can be a a little bit more ease at the beginning, and then things start to get a little bit more (laughs) difficult. Not actually difficult, but the energy can start to build from the practice and that energy can move the mind and create some inner restlessness and uh, we start thinking about uh, things that we may not have thought of before. There can be sometimes a sense of things getting a little bit more dense rather than more light. So it can actually go both ways. So you probably fit into one of those categories. I mean, I think that's it. It either gets more, you know, busier and a little more dense, or it gets lighter and it more easeful. You know, but both are, both are the case. We hear that from both, from, from people we saw today. So this, so retreat has its own rhythm. It has its own pattern. And as, as we continue on for more and more days, that there's a certain pattern that continues for people. So you're all right on track, you know, just as you were the first day and the second day, you're right on track again. There's, no one who's, um, who's lost it or, you know, out of the sequence. You know, we're, we just, we follow along in some kind of a rhythm here together. And people stay. You stayed. It's wonderful. You know, I think there's a way that you, we know that something's right about this. You know, there's something that keeps us here. Just as it did for me when I did my very, very first weekend retreat where I was basically... Um, having a nervous breakdown, um, I really thought I was going to totally flip out of my skin. And I stayed. <laughs> I stayed with it. And then I reflected on that when I got home. And it's like, and, and I, because I wanted to do it again, you know. <laughs> it was like, why? <laughs> what, what, what is that? Is it some kind of, you know, self-afflicted torture or something? But there's something, you know, I knew, I knew inside that there was something that was right, that I was touching something within my being that needed to be seen, that needed to be known, recognized. And therefore, I did. I just, I continued from that time, from that weekend. It was very, it had a very profound impact, even though at the time it didn't 
I couldn't understand it very well. All I could sense was that inner knowing that something was right. So something keeps us going along. And as we do, there's the possibility of more and more insight, more and more understanding into the nature of this body, this mind, this personality, that who we take ourselves to be. And something can be quite satisfying about that, about that uh, journey of discovery. Last night, and Howie's wonderful talk, I enjoyed it so much, he was really talking about this, in the beginning he was talking about this complicated mind. You know, um, how, <laughs> how really complicated it can be. And... He, and, and I think that one of the things we do begin to see when we meditate, when we sit down, when we look at ourselves, is this complicated mind. In the beginning, it can also seem like a nuisance, a distraction. Um, we can find ourselves getting caught up in it a lot, lost, taken away. We can get pulled away through our sleepiness and our tiredness and our restlessness. And we can sometimes judge that or think it's wrong or we're doing something wrong or we're we're not doing the practice or I don't know how to do this practice. But it's interesting, though, that what can can start to happen is that we we kind of wake up to the fact that we are actually seeing this. We're actually knowing the mind in a way that maybe we haven't known it before. We're actually noticing how we get pulled away by our thoughts. We're noticing how um, seductive they are and how we can actually have periods where we, we like, like gaps in our, in our, in our experience where, where, where was I? You know, that gap could be a short gap. Sometimes it's a little bit longer and it's like, what happened <laughs> to that period of time? And maybe that's something that might be going on a lot in our lives, but we don't notice it. Because the awareness isn't present to actually be there when we wake up and go, wow, I was just gone for a while. Whether, that, whether we're getting pulled by the loss of energy through our sleepiness or tiredness, exhaustion, which also can pull us into these kind of gaps of our consciousness, but also, and maybe even stronger, are these uh, the stories that the mind generates, the, the, what we call papancha, this wonderful uh, poly word uh, uh, where, where the mind just kind of jumps on a train and we go off to some kind of destination. And, you know, about 20 minutes later, we wind up, you know, in Thailand or, you know, when we were four years old or you know, in a fight with our partner. It's like, how did I get here? You know, but yet we're in that whole associative thought and that's the papancha. One thought leads to another, to another, and we're gone. But the thing is that we're we're actually starting to see that and recognize it, which is phenomenal. You know, it's it's a very wonderful and sophisticated thing to be able to recognize that there are gaps in our consciousness, in our awareness. And that's actually our life that we're missing. It's like moments of our life that we're not here. We're not here for that. 
You know, whether that's, you know, we're talking now about thought uh, and just the habits of consciousness, but there's also ways that we get pulled into activities or uh, sometimes destructive activities, different kind of addictive uh, patterns that also just pull us into a kind of world, a, a kind of an imaginary or unreal world, and we're gone again from, from this present reality. So, so we're wanting to know that. We're wanting to know how we get pulled away, how we get seduced into these imaginary worlds, whether it's the dreamlike world of the sleep, tiredness, the dreamlike world of the, of the stories, whether it's the dreamlike world of our addictive qualities, and, and, and start to recognize it, that there might be a way we're missing this direct experience of reality here. And it's funny because some people who uh, have, have reported that they are arriving more fully here in the present moment, and then it's like, well, what's the big deal, right? I'm here, but this doesn't seem so great either. <laughs> you know, I find I'm bored, you know, there's not that much that's interesting, so my fantasies are much more interesting than this. You know, and so so there can be a way of not really under not not it doesn't make sense yet. Well, why would I want to just be here when it's just like so nothing very interesting at all? Sometimes it can be like that, and yet that's just a stepping stone. That arriving, the arriving is really a stepping stone to something much greater, much deeper, much more connected that we haven't even really begun to dive into. But we have to get here. We have to arrive here first. So we begin with the practice of returning. Returning, and we notice that we're getting lost or caught up or pulled away in all these different kinds of uh, patternings of mind. Then we return back. We return back. We start to establish this mindfulness, establish a ground of mindfulness so that we can begin to know our experience. We can start to know the body as the body, know the mind as the mind, know these impulses towards liking and disliking, know which are called feeling or vedana, this uh, tone of experience, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, which leads to the liking and the disliking. We start to feel into our experience a little bit more. And this is, these are the first three foundations of mindfulness that the Buddha talks about. And he really simply says in the text of these, these instructions for these first three foundations is just to know the body as the body, Know the feeling tone of experience as feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Know the mind as the mind. That's all. Just know these mind and body experiences. Not that they need to be any particular way, not that the mind needs to be calm or empty or silent. It's just know the mind is the mind. When there's lust in the mind, know, know there's lust in the mind. When there's agitation in the mind, know there's agitation. When there's calm in the mind, know that. When the mind is uh, at rest, know that. Or when the body has unpleasant sensations, know that. 
when the body is tranquil and quiet, know that. So, so the emphasis is really on the knowing, not on the kind of experience that we're having. That's the way we establish the mindfulness. Once the mindfulness is established, then we can begin to receive the different data or information from our experience and start to make sense out of it, start to understand it in a way that perhaps we haven't understood it before. We start to know the mind as the mind, the body as a body, and, and start putting all these pieces of the puzzle together, which then is the arising of wisdom, the arising of wise understanding or wise view. So the goal of this path is the arising of the wisdom, is the cultivation of the wisdom that comes through this cultivation of mindfulness and knowing our experience. So we, we, often, we, we, we often misunderstand what the goal of what it is that we're doing here. Sometimes, and we hear this a lot, is that people think that what we are trying to do is to clear the mind and come to a place of calm and tranquility. And that somehow we're supposed to be able to then leave here on Monday and enter into a state of clear mind and calm and tranquility for the rest of our life. (laughs) Which I can tell you right now isn't going to happen. So if you do have that uh, expectation, uh, you can, I just really want to encourage you to let it go. Otherwise, you're going to be very disappointed. <laughs> because really what we're trying to establish is this ground of mindfulness so that we can actually stay connected to our experience and begin to discover and understand uh, what's actually happening and make more and more sense of this mysterious realm in which we live. It's a very strange place. I mean, how did we get here and what is going on? <laughs> you know? I mean, at some point, in a, you know, for some people in their lives, they start asking questions about that. Like, what, what is this? And why are we here? And, and how did I get here? And who am I? And, you know, how did this all come together? And, you know, we just start being curious about about this, the, the nature of this existence. So this practice is much more than trying to clear our mind or empty the mind. There are certain practices that support that. You can do certain uh, concentration practices that will really support entering into a more and more absorbed uh, state of concentration, and then different kinds of experiences can happen from there. There is a possibility of transcending some thought and some of the hindrances. However, once we leave the conditions that support that, we're back into the personality again and all the different patternings are there. And there sometimes isn't a lot of learning or understanding that happens. We learn a lot about the consciousness and the territory. However, we don't learn a lot about this selfhood, you know, this sense of who I take myself to be and how I interact in the world Um, in this conventional world, which is where the mindfulness comes in and really supports that kind of of inquiry. I wanted to read this piece from uh, Robert Thurman, who uh, is a a teacher and Western teacher who uh, spends a lot of time with the Tibetans. And... um, 
there's this lovely piece that he's written which really just points to our particular predicament around our, our mind. He said, so this is one of my favorite things to propose to people who meditate. Westerners are all taught from a very early age a certain form of intensive mental patterning, but not Asians. I love to ask Tibetans to add up in their heads 9,473 and 6,722. A Tibetan cannot do that. They absolutely will not be able to do that. The most intelligent and great lama, whatever, they cannot do it. They go, huh? Say it again? (laughs) They won't do it. We can do it easily, almost any of us, because we can make a picture in our mind, visualize the numbers, put a line under them, and go zip, zip, zop, zop, carry one, two, three, four. We can visualize such a thing easily because we're taught since childhood to do such things in our head. We have this whole educational system that really trains the mind and the intellect in this way. In the normal cycling of thought, we have lots of very tight little circuits that pattern our thinking. A lot of energy is tied up in that. So when we come to meditate and begin to slow the thinking pattern down or even abandon the thoughts and see them float away, this can tend to be a powerful experience for us to suddenly be suspended in space and time for a few moments of our life without thinking about what we're doing. Suddenly there is so much energy released by getting out of that tight little circuit. We can feel calm or like we're floating. We might even feel like we've attained something. But in the Buddhist nations for whom such meditative disciplines have so, been so much part of their civil, civilization and culture for so long, such as Tibetans, the norm is not to think very much. So therefore, they're already very relaxed. They have a very relaxed culture, a very friendly culture. They don't think about a lot of things. (laughs) On the contrary, their educational system has all sorts of ways of battering them to get them to think because there can be an excess of no thinking. (laughs) Believe it or not. But not thinking isn't it either. Even if you've learned that the secret way and the high and great seal of perfection is like a clarified, luminous, and magnificent, marvelous state of non-thought, that's too simple. It's much more than non-thought. So what it is that we are entering into is not so simple as just being able to abandon our thoughts or empty our mind. This is something much more mysterious, some, something much more multidimensional, much more multilayered. This existence, this uh, uh, consciousness, this, this world, this universe, is a very mysterious place. There's many, 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 many things to understand and discover and journey with. This is really a marvelous path that we begin to enter into that, it could be said, has no end. It has no end point. It just keeps expanding and opening and revealing more and more and more of its mysteries to us. It seems that that is the nature of consciousness itself, is to just keep expanding and opening. And this seems to be what we actually enter into through our meditative experiences. 
Not that we're looking for anything in particular, because how can we say there's something in particular in this marvelous, marvelous universe with this myriad and diverse possibilities and creativities and experience here. So it's really entering into a kind of adventure. I often, I often feel like I'm on some kind of adventure on this path because I don't know what's going to happen. And more and more having that attitude of not knowing, that attitude of entering into some kind of mysterious, on some, in, into some mysterious journey is exhilarating, kind of exciting, kind of scary, kind of scary at times too. But it's like, wow. I mean, what is this? What's happening? <laughs> and so more and more, perhaps we can have that attitude of like that, that openness or that letting go into that unknowing, into the unknowing, so that we're actually not trying to get rid of anything. It might even be more of an attitude of including and receiving and gathering, gathering our attention, ga- collecting our attention so that we can actually be here for the diversity of this experience without needing to change anything or, or want anything in particular. So this gathering is also this gathering of our attention, gathering the disperse, those, those, the parts, the fragments that keep going out, all the thoughts and the feelings and that create these imaginary worlds and kind of gathering, collecting back. So we're actually here. We can be here for this magical show, for this magical journey. So one of the things we need to do is really establish a wise relationship to our thinking so that we're not actually trying to reject it. We're not trying to get rid of our thinking. We're not, we don't see the thinking as the enemy. But actually thought is really one of the uh, uh, tremendous, um, un, un, understandable, we can't understand this amazing gift of our thinking, of our thought. That, this is, that we have this capacity to think we have this capacity to create. We have this, 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 uh, this very sophisticated brain that can come up with all kinds of amazing kind of creative ideas and uh, uh, new, new things that have never been discovered before. So we really want to establish a kind and a correct relationship to our thoughts so we're not rejecting it, but rather we are establishing ourselves in enough ground of, of mindful awareness so that we can actually know our thoughts when they arise and when they pass. We can know the sensations in the body when they come and they go. We can know our feelings. So we're actually here for it rather than manipulating and, and tinkering with and trying to control. Because when we do that, then we see that actually everything is just coming and going by itself. Thoughts have come and go, and you see this, how quickly they come and then they go, like, like, they f- like fleeting raindrops, you know, snowflakes, you know, just, or the stars sparkling in the sky in, at night. You know, so everything's fleeting so quickly, so there's nothing we actually have to do about anything. 
it seems that our task really is to establish our ground of mindful awareness so that we can then open to all of this, including our thought. Now, because thought is so tricky and seductive and we say open to thought, then we can just say, well, I'm just going to get yanked all over the place and pulled around by my thought if I open to it. So we learn, we, we learn different skills on how to be with our thought and work with our thoughts so that we're not rejecting, but rather we're able to allow our thought to come and go and see more of its impermanent nature, keep ourselves energized and, and established so that we're not going to sleep, our mind doesn't get too dull, we can st- keep a certain balance of alertness, One of the things that I do when I work with my thoughts is, and I've spoken about this in in one of the groups, is that there's there's a way we can start start to imagine our experience as kind of a foreground background. So that certain, certain kinds of experiences are in the foreground, like if I'm eating, or if I'm washing the dishes, or if I'm talking to somebody, there, that's a foreground experience. But then there's always the background, you know, the, the sort of the chattering or the thoughts that are kind of always going on in, the, you know, in our mind. It seems like they don't really turn off. Have you kind of noticed that? <laughs> there's just some, um, I think Sokni Rinpoche, one of, one of our teachers, said it's kind of like that when you're watching the news on, on TV and on, underneath they've got the ticker tape that's kind of going by and it's a whole other set of news that you're, you can read at the same time, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So you're hearing the broadcaster, but then there's also this whole other, you know, completely different set of, you know, news. It's kind of like that, you know. There's one thing happening, but there's this whole other stream going on too. So, So we can actually start to work with that, where we can keep our primary experience, the more predominant experience in the foreground, even like the breath can be in the foreground. And then we just allow the thoughts to just kind of recede into the background of our experience. So we don't have to give them, we don't have to give them so much attention, we don't have to shut them down, we don't have to turn them off. It's kind of this receding back, not, so we don't have to be so bothered by the thought. And for me, it's always like having a radio on in the back of the room. You know, there's just this radio on, and you know, it's, I just get on with my business, and every now and then, you know, because you're aware that the radio is on, you hear something, like the announcer says something that, you know, kind of gets your attention, and so you listen. And it's a good thing, because you want to know when there's something that you need to listen to. So you just kind of, there's not a forgetting that, you can't forget anyhow, you're sort of not forgetting what the thoughts are. But there's a certain kind of attentiveness in case there's something that you need to know or that I need to know. So that there's a, the the thinking is actually useful. It's a, it's a, it's an important part of our humanity to use our thought. But the reason we want it to recede is because 99% of our thoughts are repetitive thoughts that we've had over and over and over and over again. And they're very boring and pretty irrelevant. <laughs> but every now and then, about 1% or 2% of our thoughts are, oh yeah, I want to remember that one, or there's something I want to actually do something about. You know, like when you remember somebody's birthday, and you actually want to send them a card because you want to keep that connection. 
that's a thought you want to pay attention to and actually follow. Or, you know, the beautiful kinds of thoughts that arise in our heart and we want to connect with people or want to do kind things or we want to keep communication or keep our responsibilities and our commitments. Sometimes that arises through thought. So thought's not the problem. Thought's not the problem. And in Buddhism, the Buddha was interested in what is the problem. That's what Buddhism is about. It's like getting to the problem. And the problem is or are the causes and conditions that give rise to our suffering. And the causes and the conditions that give rise to our suffering, and how we spoke about this so wonderfully last night, is the grasping in the mind that gives rise to our greed, of wanting, wanting those uh, experiences that are going to give us some kind of sustained pleasure through the senses or different kinds of situations, or the aversion, the rejection of experience which, when we're not getting what we want and we don't like what's happening, and that grasping and the, and the contraction of pushing things away. And then the delusion or the ignorance where we just kind of space out or we go to sleep or we we don't understand what's really going on, all of our confusion and through our perceptions. That's the problem. And the difficulty is that greed and that hatred and that confusion, it it weaves through the thought. It's kind of like it's binded up in the thought. You know, it's not the, the, the thought itself can be freed up of the greed and the hatred and the confusion. We can actually have thoughts that are beautiful thoughts and, and, and thoughts that are connected with the good and with the heart and with others and with reality in a kind and a compassionate and wise way. But it's when the thought is actually getting uh, uh, twisted up, con- con- uh, constrained in the in these forces of the greed and the the hate and the confusion, that's the problem. So we want to give our attention to our thought to see if the greed and the hate and the confusion are actually operating through the mind, through the forces of the mind in our thought. That's what we're wanting to get at. So we say, let's pay attention pay attention to the times that we feel that craving or that grasping, that aversion, the, 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 con- the contraction in the mind and the body. Pay attention to that because those are the conditions that are going to give rise to our pain and our suffering, both for ourselves and for others. And pay attention to the times when we become kind of deluded or, or confused or spaced out because we're not thinking so clearly and we're likely to act out in ways that are going to be unskillful or cause, reap some uh, consequences that are going to be hurtful to ourselves or others. And so, so in that way we begin to understand what, what's actually giving rise to the painful aspect of our life. That's what we, why we want to establish, establish this ground of awareness, this ground of attention, so that we can know what's going on. I sat a retreat. I had the good fortune of being able to sit two weeks this year with um, a teacher I've wanted to sit with for a long time, 
at the Insight Meditation Society, this teacher, uh, Saida Utejaniya, a wonderful, wonderful teacher. And so the whole of this, that practice, of course, the same, I mean, it's a little bit in, in the form is different, but is to sustain a continuity of mindful attention in everything that we're doing. Everything. I mean, like we're doing here, and yet that's, that's the only real instruction, is sustain this continuity of awareness. There's actually not any other um, meditation instructions. And so, so I was really practicing with sustaining that uh, awareness. And, of course, um, you know, life, life happens, you know, whether we're on retreat or not. And one of the things that was happening was it was Mother's Day while I was at the retreat. And my mother is quite elderly now, and she's living in Florida, and I don't really get a chance to see her very much. And she's not doing well physically. She's running into a lot of difficulties. And so it was very, very important to me that she got this Mother's Day card on time. And it was happening right in the middle of the retreat. And because we're in silence, and you can't just walk over to the mailbox, you know, drop it in. There wasn't a mailbox you know, and I didn't have a stamp, you know, you have to start negotiating all that kind of stuff while you're doing your practice. And so I started getting a little bit obsessed with this Mother's Day card (laughs) and the fact that it had to get to her on time. I didn't want it to get there after Mother's Day. I didn't want it to get there too soon before Mother's Day. You know, I really, (laughs) you know, I wanted to, to really be, you know, have this impact for her that, that her daughter was thinking of her. Good intention, you know, it was a heartful thought, you know, it was following it through, but it really started <laughs> papancha, you know, having to go to the office and get the stamp and find out when they collected the mail and making sure which day I thought it would actually get there, you know, how many days the mail would take so it would... And then, is this the right day? And then making sure the office hours were open so I could get into the office and put... (laughs) It was a mother, just a card, okay? So when we start paying attention, we just start to see what is actually starting to agitate the mind. And my attachment, so this attachment, the craving that started to arise out of this outcome that I needed to have happen. You know, I could have just p- dropped it in the office and she got it when she got it, you know, because my, I'm, you know, it's interfering with my retreat, but I didn't. So the day that I had figured it all out, that I could put it in the office this day, the mail would pick it up, she would get it on time, the office was closed. <laughs> The difficulty is I had been in the office the day before kind of just checking things out, you know, like, (laughs) what do you think? How do you think the mail is going to go? And when I was in the office and they knew that I wanted to get this on, they didn't tell me the office would be closed. So the day I went, to take my car, and I don't just walk into, you know, the office, it's, you know, there's boundaries, right? I walked to the door, I saw the sign that said, office closed. I just, I had this strong reaction. I was so angry. So I just saw the whole thing, I got angry at the office, why didn't they tell me? They could have told me, 
You know, I was there yesterday. She said, couldn't, she knew how important this was. You know, in the mind, just starting, you know, and the, just feeling like a victim. Like they, they did this on purpose, you know. <laughs> They're out to, I'm a te- you know, I'm a teacher and they're really wanting to, me to look at my, you know. It's like... <laughs> You know, and I was angry at the person I spoke to. and I mean, I could just feel the whole thing. And I was very mindful, right? <laughs> Mindfulness doesn't necessarily mean that it's all just going to stop. Mindfulness means, okay, feel this. Look at your reaction. Look how this attachment to the outcome. And, and because I was really interested in this reactivity, which is what we're really encouraging here is be interested what's going on what's going on i started to see and feel my my need for my mother to see me as a good daughter you know it was it was just that that i was like in this i became like this child again that just needed my mother to see me this way and it was all wrapped up in this mother's day card and i didn't know it until the office was closed. <laughs> and then, bam, it just all was up. And I got to just see that whole relationship that was going on and lots of deep aspects to that relationship and my love for her and my care for her and then my sense of loss and my sense of grief that I can't be near her and I couldn't be with her. And it's just all this started to come. And it really opened up so much for me, eventually able to drop the anger and drop the out, you know, knowing that, this was clearly happening as an opportunity for me to look at my reactivity and what was going on here and not hold on to my storyline about how they were wrong to have done this to me. And I could see how in a less mindful state, maybe not necessarily myself, but in a, some, someone who wasn't really paying attention, that could just be the separation. They're bad. I don't want anything to do with them anymore. I'm leaving. You know, this place isn't supportive. It isn't safe. I don't want to be here. This is, you know, you can just, the way the story could just get built up and built up and built up. And then the separation and the pain of that separation. And so in the seeing of this, I could just, it really allowed me to start to connect more fully with the situation with my mother and the grief that I feel around that, the, the sense of uh, helplessness. You're going more and more into the helplessness. And usually when there's a strong reaction like that, there's usually some sense of helplessness there, out of controlness. This is out of control. I can't control it. I can't fix this. I can't do anything about it. And then the panic and the fear and the anger. And, and through our practice, this possibility of, okay, breathe. What's going on? What's going on? This lovely poem from Rumi. Don't let your throat tighten with fear. Take sips of breath all day and night before death closes your mouth. Don't let your throat tighten with fear. Take sips of breath all day and night. Isn't that beautiful? Take sips of breath. So we're actually 
opening the throat. <laughs> the fear just contracts and constricts and the anger, the anger and the fear are completely co-joined. And the breath, and coming into the body and feeling the body, taking that sip of the breath. We can do that all day and all night, you know, that our practice gives us that reminder. So the, the sip of breath begins to relax the cells a little bit more, relax the heart that's so tight and contracted a little bit more. This rem, rem, reminder, this is, this is what we need to come back to ourself. Because I could see in this situation how I just, it was all about them, me and them, you know, us and them. It was them and they did this to me. You know, and when I'm there with, they did this to me, I'm not here. I'm not here with, with all this complexity of feeling and uh, this whole environment of what's actually happening in my experience. And then this whole multi-layered possibility of understanding this, this structure of me and what is what this configuration is of this self that I take myself to be. And one of them and one of the attachments and one of the, the places that I get caught is around my mother. And my, my, my desire to be closer to her, my desire to be with her, my, my sense of helplessness around her situation. And, and that's important for me to stay present with because I can see how easy it is to start acting out of that and getting angry, and getting, getting uh, uh, really contracted, and not feeling my grief, and not feeling the loss, and not preparing myself for the, uh, the, the looming end of her life. So all of this, all of this kind of, it's all, I see it sometimes as a preparation, uh, preparation for when life hits when the difficult aspects of our life hits. In fact, Ajahn Chah, one of the elders in our, uh, tr- in our tradition, um, the Thai forest monk, he said, mindfulness is practice for the moment when life really hits, when you can't go up, down, or sideways. Practice begins when you can't go up, down, or sideways. And I love that because isn't that the feeling? I mean, you, you, you want to go forward or you want to do something and there's nothing we can do. Again, that, that sense of, of helplessness, which really is the, the, I think, the underlying, kind of maybe even the seat of this ego mind because the ego continually wants to manipulate and control and fix experience to its own preferences and its own liking and its own need for security, need for solid, permanent ground, so I know where I am. Different than the I know where I am from a place of wisdom awareness, but I know where I am out of fear because I'm so frightened. I need to know where I am. So this constant sense of controlling our experience. And yet as we start to feel, as as the layers start to drop away and we allow ourselves to open and open and open more to, to direct experience the way it is, we may start to feel some of that underlying restlessness and anxiety 
and agitation and helplessness about the way things are. It's very vulnerable. We call that our most vulnerable way of being. And most of, you know, we, we defend against that. We build up all kinds of defenses and, and structures so that we don't have to feel that vulnerability. And then we're kind of bouncing around inside, you know, this, this kind of structure we've built up as me. But in the meditation, we can start to feel it. We start to soften. We start to come more into contact and connection with the wholeness of ourselves, with the whole range. And that's just one, that's just one set of experience in the, the more difficult or the more vulnerable. There's a whole, all kinds of experience that we have as we start to feel and open and connect and sense into ourselves and what's here and our relationship with others and with, with uh, situations in our life. So sometimes we may say that this practice does uh, invite us into more and more vulnerability. And I think that's one thing that we might say, I'm not so sure, (laughs) you know, I'm not so sure if I want to go there. You know, I'm liking the way that I'm structured and, you know, the way that I function in this world. And, you know, but yet this is something that begins to happen. And this is, too, the awakening of the heart. The awakening of the heart. In a moment of mindfulness, in one moment of mindfulness, even when the mind is filled with greed and aversion and, and confusion, when we are actually mindful, we are already beginning to weaken the force of those, of those uh, taints, they're called taints of mind, the destructive forces of mind. Because in the moment of mindfulness, we're already stepped back enough into the, into the space of awareness. We're not feeding it. We're not reinforcing those patterns of greed and hatred and delusion. And as we do that, we're actually then encouraging its opposite. And the Buddha speaks about this. And the opposite, which is non-greed non-hatred, non-delusion. When we uh, unpack those words a little bit more, non-greed is a manif- one of the manifestations of non-greed is uh, letting go, renunciation, you know, the, the, the act of not needing very much, living with little, living with simplicity. So non-greed... Uh, letting go, that the quality of not holding on, or non-hatred, non, non, uh, non-ill will. When we look at that, what the, um, the manifestation of that really is loving kindness you know, or compassion, the beautiful qualities of the heart. When the, when, the, when, the heart, when the heart and mind is absent of the ill will, of the aversion, of the, of the hate. Then, the, then there's the, the possibility for the heart to express its, its uh, innate nature, which is the pure purity of love, connection, harmony, goodwill, the goodness that we are when the occlusion of these painful states start to weaken. And the non-delusion, the non-confusion, what that is is wisdom. 
It's the wisdom. It's the expression of non-confusion. It's, it's clear seeing. When we're not confused, not deluded, it means a mind that is seeing clearly, is connected with the way things are, which is with the wise view, the wise understanding. So, so in this way, there's a mindfulness, as the mindfulness is reinforced and established and stabilized, more and more we are encouraging and reinforcing the states of all these, all these different qualities of non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. Letting go, renunciation, loving kindness, compassion, wisdom. All of this starts to come, has the opportunity to come forth. Naturally, there's nothing we have to do. There's nothing we have to do. It just, that's who we are. That's who we are already. So as we take away these defensive structures, these beautiful qualities of our being start to come through. And that's why they come through anyhow, because that's who we are. They're already coming through. Different ways we express our love and our kindness and our care and our connection and our wisdom is already coming through. It's not like it's, a, it's black and white. You know, now I'm really greedy and, and deluded and, and aggressive and angry and, now, and then I will be you know, more heartful and wise. Now we see how it's just, yeah, it's all playing. It's all express, getting, expressing itself in different ways right now. It's all here. We're all of it. We're all of it. So as we pay more and more attention, we can start to notice the times when the, when the heart is unbounded, unbinded, when the heart is free, when that, there's more purity of expression in our being. And, and we can enjoy that. We can appreciate ourselves in that state when, the, when that, that condition is arising. And then there's no problem. There's, there's no problem. There's nothing we have to do. There's nothing we have to, um, to work towards. There's nothing we have to manipulate. We can just enjoy that wonderful feeling of being unoccluded and open and all the, all the wonderful things that begin to happen when we're, in, when we're there. And then the times that we're not, the times when there's more contraction, like for me, what happened for me around the card, and the times when, when we feel more bo- bounded, binded, then we can pay attention see what it is that we actually need to, how we can help ourselves, what kind of skillful means we can use to help ourselves release, begin to release from those uh, difficult states. This is, the, this is the wisdom. More and more the wisdom starts to operate through us. Not only through us, but we then become manifestations of this wisdom more and more and more. We know how to respond. We know what's needed in any given situation. More and more. So we're freeing ourselves in this way. Freeing ourselves from these difficult patterns of attachment and grasping craving, all these different ways that these habits run through. And, they're, and it's, they're very deep, very, very deep in all of us. In all of us, these conditions, these influences, all that was set in, in motion 
you know, maybe from the beginning of this life, maybe from past lives, who knows? You know, whatever it is that you believe around that. But very, very strong conditions for us that we are all working with. And uh, hopefully we care enough, we feel a sense of urgency enough that we really do enter into this practice so that we can free ourselves from these difficulties, um, these pain, the pain and the suffering that we feel in our life. We're not bad, we're not wrong that we have these conditions arising, these reactive, contracted conditions arising within ourselves. It's, it's not wrong. How can it be wrong? It's just the way it is. It's just the, the conditions that are arising. It's the way that we find ourselves. And when we can start to see from that perspective that this isn't wrong, there are causes and conditions that have been set in motion over time that give rise to a certain constellation of who I am now in the present moment. As I see that in a more clear way, it, it, it can evoke, and it does for me, evoke all this compassion, a lot of compassion towards myself for what does arise in my uh, experience. And when I saw what happened for me at the, at, at the uh, retreat, it was incredible compassion that arose in regards to me, my, uh, my experience, especially because I can get into sometimes a fixation of, well, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a Dharma teacher, so therefore I don't have reactions, right? You know, there's, you know, some kind of false belief that I, you know, would like to believe, but then, you know, then things happen, right? <laughs> It's like, okay, you know, I can't kid myself. I can't deceive myself. And then the truth is revealed. And there's a tremendous humility, tremendous compassion in seeing that, that yes, this happens. These conditions are very deep. This is the spiritual journey. This is the spiritual journey. It's, it's, it's a journey. A journey to more and more experiences of freedom and in that freedom, more and more experiences of love and compassion and connection and harmony and unity. I'll end with this poem, these, uh, these kind of enlightenment poems. This is from Ch- uh, Ch- uh, Choki Nima, who is uh, one of the wonderful brothers of this, of this family who these amazing teachers in this Tibetan family, brother of uh, Sokni Rinpoche, who we speak about a lot here. Um, This is one of his poems. He says, When watching the magical display of this world, as it seems to be, spontaneously an overwhelming despair and pity well up in me. When watching its nature of innate simplicity as it really is, I cannot help but feel wonder and break out in laughter. When watching the one who feels pity and the one who is laughing, both disappear and cannot be found. Now, what to do? Let's sit for a moment together.
Thank you for your attention. So it's just coming to 8.30 now. We have a half an hour for... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.